0: This this is the Impressions Exchange podcast. Impressions Exchange podcast where all topics impacting the graphic imaging and printing industry are addressed via in-depth news coverage, analysis and timely interviews. Welcome to this very special episode of the Impressions Exchange podcast. This will be our final episode during Women's History Month and I have two very special guests with me today. My colleague, Elizabeth Lyons-Black, Director of Women in Print Alliance, joins the episode to discuss the group and offer some framework to our discussion with our other guest for the day, Marianne Cooper, who is the Senior Research Scholar at VMware, Women's Leadership Innovation Lab at Stanford University. Marianne is also the co-author of Women in the Workplace, an annual study from McKinsey and leanin.org. During the episode, Marianne tells us about the study, explains what the great breakup and the broken rung are, walks us through some of the seismic shifts that have occurred in response to the pandemic, and lets us in on what allyship really means. So I'm here with Marianne and Elizabeth. Welcome to you both. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah, happy to be here. Great. So, uh, you know, I I have a bunch of questions for you both today, um, but I there is something that I want to start with, I, and Elizabeth, I'm going to start with you. So um, at Printing United Alliance, we have something called the Women in Print Alliance. So can you talk to us about that? What is it? You know, what's its purpose? Just tell us everything. Sure. I'm excited
1: to to tell you about it because it's a new initiative Um, in terms of the official launch has been here in 2023 this year, but it's not a new idea at all. Um, There has been a group of longtime dedicated women leaders in the industry that have repeatedly brought up the need for some type of organization, almost an organization within the association, if you will, a sub-association. That would focus on connecting and empowering women in the printing industry um, it's no secret that the printing industry is um, very male dominated in terms of just the gender representation working at printing companies and leading printing companies and I've lobbied and advocated for the printing industry for almost 20 years, I have seen a lot of positive change um, toward more women involved in leadership positions. And um, I think that's wonderful, but there's no doubt that it's still a very small number compared to the men that are in leadership positions and just working in the printing industry in general. So that was kind of the, the genesis of the Women in Print Alliance. And so we decided rather than just have kind of informal, um, small groups talking about how to address some of these challenges. We really needed a formalized organization. And so our goal, as I said, really our overriding goal is to empower and connect women in the printing industry. And we're developing a variety of programming and tactics that we hope will be able to attract, retain, advance, and advocate for women um, in the printing industry. And we're looking at a variety of exciting events that are going to be coming forward in 2023 uh, all around the topics of personal and professional development, work-life balance, um, networking opportunities, special events, particularly at our trade show, Printing United Expo, which is in Atlanta in October. And all of this really is at the heart of it, designed to build community and again, empower and connect women in our industry. In addition to the community building, we knew that before we started developing program offerings for Women in Print Alliance, we really needed to do some research and have some understanding of what women are facing in the workplace broadly in a variety of industries so that we could really focus then on the printing industry and how to um, better, uh, as I said, empower and encourage women to rise up in in leadership in the companies. And really the gold standard study out there that's produced annually is the McKinsey and leanin.org study on women in the workplace. And um, that was actually the first place I went Uh, I started this job in January. The study came out, I think, in October, and it was one of the first uh, pieces of research that I read, and it really helped shape what we're looking to do with Women in Print Alliance. And um, I was really excited to have the opportunity to meet uh, my fellow guest, uh, Marianne Cooper, at an event um, last fall where she spoke about the study And um, I thought immediately, we really need to bring her insight and kind of bring that baseline of research to the larger audience of Women in Print Alliance. So very excited to be with both of you today and um, to hear more from Marianne about this study, which by the way, is on our LinkedIn channel and available to those who follow us
0: on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you so much. And that was a great transition to our next question, which is for Mary Ann. Um, so can, can you tell us about this study and your role in authoring it?
2: Sure. Yes, I'm a co-author on this study. It's a, um, it's a survey and it is the largest survey on the status of women in corporate America. And this past year's report focused on over 300 companies and more than 40,000 employees to understand what's happening and uh, what's top of mind for women and women leaders, but the learnings and insights from the report have relevance for companies of all sizes. That's perfect. And that's, I mean, it's, it's great for our
0: audience, which is comprised of companies of all different sizes. So, um, you know, the big bold headline in the study coins the term, the great breakup. And we heard a lot about the great resignation throughout COVID, um, but what is the great breakup and how is it specific to women?
2: Yeah. So what we saw is that uh, in this past year's report is that women were switching companies at the highest rates we've seen in years and at higher rates than men in leadership. So we wanted to understand what's going on. And we were asking questions about why people are leaving jobs, what matters more to them now. um, And what we learned is that women want a different kind of workplace and working differently during the first few years of the pandemic opened up possibilities for doing things differently. And women don't want to go back to the traditional workplace. That's incredibly
0: interesting. And um, so another term um, was the broken rung. So uh, we've all heard of the corporate ladder. So which rung on the ladder is broken, and um,
2: is it even more broken for women or for some women than for others? Yeah. So let me add that since so many women are leaving their companies, I want to be women leaders are leaving their companies, and I want to be clear that they're not leaving the workforce; they're leaving their companies and going to other ones. So this is not a story of you know women deciding to just quit work altogether. This is voting with their feet and going to companies that have the the policies, programs, and values that they're 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 more interested in, but it does create a different um, kind of pipeline problem, which is that there are uh, very few women in leadership overall. About one in four in the C-suite overall. Um, and one in 20 uh, women of color are in the seed suite. So, women and women of color in particular are already significantly underrepresented. And now companies are trying to hold on to the few women they have as women really sort out this is what matters to me, and this is why I'm leaving this company and going to another one. So, that's one set of issues for the pipeline. But for many years now, um, we've documented what we call the broken rung. So, when you look at the gender gap in promotions, the largest gender gap, actually, to our surprise, and as we uh, started this this survey many years ago now, um, the biggest gap is at that first step up, so between entry level and that first managerial uh, role, and uh, the problem is, at that point, you see, like, this separation happen, and then women can't ever catch up, because there's not enough women who've gotten to that next phase to get to the next one, and so on and so forth, and What's interesting is there usually is a focus on women in leadership roles, and there should be, but actually if you want to address and create a a more robust pipeline of women moving through the pipeline, you really need to focus on the broken rung. So there's sort of a a two-part here when we're thinking about the pipeline is right now in this moment, senior women leaders have had enough of the traditional workplace and they want something different and, and they're leaving to get it. At the same time, we need to be focusing on the broken rung where there's this massive gender disparity and by the way, the things that matter to senior women leaders, the reasons they're leaving their companies are even more important to younger women so this is uh overall what we how we described it is that women want a seismic change in the culture of work that is
0: just so interesting and
2: you know it, it's enlightening
0: to me because it is something that you know, as a journalist so often we're looking at the women in leadership so we have as part of this series that we're doing we're, we're speaking to so many women in leadership roles but looking to the younger generations and kind of the the issues that that are relevant to them i think that's just a, an incredibly
2: yeah. important point so thank you so much um, Yeah, this is not a blip this is this is just to make it clear this is a seismic shift Right, and so we're not what the larger conversation I think, and the zeitgeist conversation is, how how much of what changed during the first few years of the pandemic is going to stick? And I think there's a real negotiation and a, and and differences of opinion, which you know we can talk about. But um, the move towards you know starting in 2020, obviously the 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 need, the public health need to move to remote work. Um, to make work flexible because people were trying to, you know, take care of children and and do their job. The focus on employee well being because we were going through a public health emergency, which was extremely stressful and scary. Um, and then, in addition, you had the uh, the murder of George Floyd and the and the focus on racial justice and the national reckoning on racism in this country. So there were a lot of um, overlapping social dynamics occurring, um, and companies. We're responding to all of that, um, focusing on DEI, focusing on employee well-being, um, and it led to, I think, a lot of people prioritizing these issues, not just for 2020 and 2021, but that these are fundamental things that now really matter to them. So that
0: moves into uh, the next question, which something that obviously, in, and you mentioned it, um, because of the pandemic, so many of us moved to this remote hybrid work environment um, and so the report states that enthusiasm for uh, workforce flexibility is higher than ever, which is you know unsurprising. Um, and so you know what are the key reasons that women are especially um, attracted to a more remote hybrid work environment?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to share some of the statistics so, about 60 percent of women said their you know their preference is to mostly work remotely um, and about 50 percent of men said that too so it's 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 very popular it's more popular among women but but significant um, among men too in terms of interest um, and and people will point to a range of, of things about why they like remote and hybrid work options from again this flexibility this um, allows people to control their schedule more and and um, shape their work life around around their personal life. Um, but what we saw in the report is that there's something more significant happening, which is that um, women who worked um, remotely at least some of the time reported experiencing fewer microaggressions than people, than women who work on site. So microaggressions are things like, It can range from more subtle things like being interrupted a lot of time to really more more egregious things like negative comments or sexist or racist comments. Um, I haven't ever seen a reduction in microaggressions based on some kind of intervention. Now, this might not have been the intervention that we had all thought about um, and the scale, but what that points to is that the day-to-day dynamics in the office are not great for a lot of women and a lot of folks of color. And so that, to me, that strong preference for remote work—the fact that when you're working, even you know, a bit remotely, there's fewer microaggressions, and not just that, but they also reported higher levels of psychological safety, so ability to make a mistake without being, you know, worrying about it, things like that. So that shines a light again on on the traditional office and the ways in which it is inhospitable to large groups of people. That I still don't think is being talked about enough, um, and the push to get people back to the office, um, w- w- which we can talk about. But um, I think what it means is that there were real problems in the way we've just traditionally thought about and experienced work, and women realize, actually I don't have to deal with that anymore, and I don't want to. It sounds like it's almost—I
0: mean—it's a bit of self-preservation. I mean, we we realize what we we're going through and then how it can be better. Like you said, it's a forced circumstance that we all went through, but not wanting to go back to that previous situation.
2: Um, yeah, because yeah, w- it's highly masculinized, just to kind of double click on, on on the <laughs> reasons behind it. So my um, advisor at, in graduate school is a, a sociologist, at Arlie Hochschild, and she wrote this book in, in 1989 called The Second Shift, which was really exploring kind of women's massive move in, into work and how couples were navigating that. And at that time, so very long time ago now, what she talked about is that in seeing you know women who were working and trying to deal with everything going on at home was a social tension between faster changing women and slower changing everything else. Slower changing husbands, slower changing companies, slower changing society. And that phrasing and that framework popped into my head when I was thinking we were getting the data back and I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is this is that same social tension. It's like women, when presented with the opportunity to move to the future, women are like, I'm in, done, you know, let's move on. And other groups are less so because it's worked for them, right? So when you're in the group that's that's disproportionately tasked with, you know, working and caretaking and running all the stuff, the shift to remote work, or even even if you're still going into the office, more a focus on flexibility and well-being, that's a way better fit for you than long hours, FaceTime, these masculinized notions of executive presence, all of these things. So the pandemic, interestingly enough, opened up a whole different idea of, of how we could structure work, how how we get work done, what's best. A lot of us found out that actually we're super productive, when we're by ourselves um, doing work rather than in an office with people kind of interrupting. So it's a pretty, um, I guess I'll say sociologically, this is a fascinating time. Like it's rare that you have that massive of a a societal change and cultural change and people in real time having to make sense of it and coming to see a different way um, that they're actually willing to Fight for and, and act upon, and that's what I think you're seeing in this great resignation and Elizabeth, I want to ask you um, a question um, about
0: this because in the printing industry, you know as you well know, there are so many roles that just can't there is no remote option. Um, and as Marianne mentioned, there's been this incredibly large shift to so many people working from home or wanting that option. so where does that leave? women in the printing industry um, in this changed environment?
1: Yeah, that's, a, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I think that um, I'd be curious um, uh, to, to hear more from Marianne, who is an expert in sociology of work, if there are, if she's aware of any research that's happening um, kind of in the areas of manufacturing, because it's, it's also retail service industry, healthcare, you know, ro- industries that have workers that physically need to be there to perform their work. But I have to say that just listening to the conversation um, and, and Marianne speaking a minute ago and the term microaggression, which is a new one for me, I did I did see that in the study, but I hadn't really thought about what that meant to our industry and just listening now um, and the fact that you said, Marianne, being interrupted, we did some surveys, um, actually a couple of focus groups at our trade show, Printing United Expo, in October of 2022. So what, five or six months ago. And we had a focus group with women. We wanted to have, again, kind of a research data understanding of what people were facing, what challenges they were facing in our industry, and what programming women might be interested in. And in the course of that focus group research, one thing that we heard over and over again, now keep in mind, Women who have not been to our trade show may not, you know, um, understand kind of how this works. But it's, it's a typical trade show where you, representing your company, are going from booth to booth to booth and speaking with different vendors. And they're trying to sell you their equipment or their, their services or their materials. And um, oftentimes, companies will send, you know, a handful of people. It's a massive show. So usually it's more than one person from a company is going to represent uh, or is, is going to be there to represent their companies and, and to network and make these deals. We heard time and again from women who were presidents or CEOs who brought along their VP of sales or you know technical VP, who was a male, that every time they went, okay, we're gonna say as a couple, right? Because it's a male and a female going and talking to vendors. Every time they went to a booth, the vendor, if they were a male, automatically addressed the male in the group thinking he was the CEO or the president and the woman was either the spouse or you know, a lower level employee. And so it was very, very frustrating. We heard that from women time and again. And I think that's, to me, I, I don't know if Mary would agree, I think to me, that's, that's an example of microaggression that a lot of women experience firsthand in our industry. Um, but anyway, that's not the question you asked
2: me. You asked about for sure. I mean, I can just, <laughs> I can, I can jump in just to say that is a common microaggression is being mistaken for someone more junior than what you really are. So, and and we do interviews, I should say too. In addition to the survey, just kind of bring to life depending on the specific talk to- topic we're focusing on the with the statistical findings. But um, you know, I've over the years heard things like, you know, I was the lead lawyer in a negotiation. And I walked into the conference room and I sat down with my computer and they thought I was the administrative assistant, right? So people are used to certain patterns in the world of men occupying the top leadership role. And when you are not a man or or not white or whatever it is, and and you're coming in, um, people can just assume you're at a different level than you actually are, which has implications for, you know, your, in, your ability to influence how much people listen to you. Um, and, and ultimately this is, this is about social status and who has higher status and who has lower status. And so the thing about microaggressions is that they can be subtle, but they, you know, there's a frequency to them and there's a continual message of disrespect and being devalued. Um, and that it, it sometimes it's super egregious. A lot of times it, it's just subtle. You can even be asking yourself, "Did that just happen? Did do they only do it to me? Are they doing it to somebody else? Is it because I'm a woman or because I'm X, Y, and Z?" Like, and that it occupies you mentally and emotionally. Um, and I've heard some people describe it as you know, death by ten thousand paper cuts, um, and just getting to the point where you're like, "This this is just so frustrating. I feel like I can't get my work done, or I'm not getting the recognition that." that I, I deserve given the quality of my work, things like that. So it's a, it's a big deal. And oftentimes, you know, other people don't necessarily see it happening or they explain it away. Um, so it's a, it's a really big issue when we think about just the interactions at work, getting back to why I think a lot of women are like, I don't need to be in the office. I don't, I don't really need that yeah, no that, but
1: that makes it's very much comports with what we heard um, during our yeah. focus groups. Unfortunately. Yeah. um, yeah. I did love though the female CEO who, uh, you know was like shot and chaser. and her chaser was, by the way, I went to another vendor and bought their equipment because, yeah. <laughs> because they didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't experience a microaggression there. And so, you know, yeah. she had the last laugh in other words, but still yes. it's it's, a, it's an still, issue yeah. that goes on in our industry for sure. And, yeah. um, and it is a challenge what, you, you know, as you mentioned, Ashley, there is a physical component when you have a manufacturing facility and mm-hmm. um, what the the way it affects printing, really, you have to look at two challenges that printing was already facing before we kind of got into this great breakup, so to speak. One was just the number of print jobs and manufacturing jobs in general, but the number of jobs that go unfilled. It's in the hundreds of thousands. And when we talk to printing company owners, regardless of gender, one of their biggest, um, you know, what keeps you up at night is finding qualified workers. And it's an aging workforce. And so the other kind of component to that is attracting next gen pipeline, you know, who's going to come work there. And given the fact that we're in this kind of seismic shift, and the fact that you have younger people, maybe who have come out of technical school, come out of college, just entering the workforce, and they entered it at the beginning of the pandemic. And that what they got a taste of something they liked right they know mm-hmm. kind of now how they want to work and there are opportunities to go into a variety of of industries so why would they pick an industry where there was some requirement to be there physically so it is mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of a double challenge now for the printing mm-hmm. industry and mm-hmm. like i said i there, i know we're not the only sector in the manufacturing industry that's that's facing that but we have talked a lot um, just as a trade association from an HR policy perspective about what can you do to kind of mitigate that and, and what mm-hmm. has come across just anecdotally. And again, I'm, I'm sure there's research out there and I and I hope that there will be more research on this topic out there. Um, but what we are advising companies to do is just to avoid creating even more of a chasm between and, and really um, a feeling that if you are somebody that has to be on the production side and you have to be there physically and that you are, you know, you don't have quote the luxury of working from home or the perceived luxury because, you know, some people do like hybrid work environments, you know? And so, you know, maybe the grass is always greener as they say, but there's such a potential for resentment between those who have to be on site and those who don't. So one thing I think printers are doing and it, it is smart is, there probably is more of a hybrid atmosphere at printing companies than fully remote. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be for a few reasons. You want your production people having some kind of interface and communication with the salespeople. There needs to be that kind of loop that goes on And yes, there are some jobs, whether it's sales or whether it's HR or finance that are suited to be remote or hybrid, but we've encouraged companies to, you know, look at having a model where there is some common touch point and that it's intentional and meaningful. It's not just, oh, everybody come in on Wednesdays, um, but that when everybody is there on Wednesdays maybe there's some sort of um you know whether it's a catered lunch or whether it's a brown bag and the employer provides desserts and beverages or just encourages um people to have that that face time so it's not uh your your remote workers aren't irritated that they have to come in they're actually having some meaningful interactions with their coworkers and um it doesn't look like just a check the box um scheduling issue um the other The other um, opportunities, I think, and I should have said probably from the outset, uh, but there's an opportunity to really look at redesigning wholesale, the manufacturing shifts and what shift hours look like, what days look like, and to do that safely and in a way that still maintains productivity and is fair uh, to employees that are on site, so there again doesn't um, there's not a resentment that's created that they're picking up the slack for those who are you know working from home, and you know the, the perception is maybe they're they're not as um, productive. We know that's not true from the statistics, but there's that um, potential for misunderstanding or resentment. Um, but another way that we've really talked to companies about trying to address and provide some policies and practices to their on-site workers that allow them the same sort of benefits that remote workers are getting, Uh, deal with things like, um, for example, a commute, right? So if you're going hybrid or remote, that's probably one thing you read about a lot is that people are saying they're so glad they don't have to commute anymore. I got an hour of my life back. I can't believe how much time I used to spend in the car that was completely wasted time. Um, so that's great, again, for the hybrid remote. So how do you address people who are still on site? Well, perhaps you acknowledge that the commute is a problem, that the commute is a real burden on them and it's a cost. And you know perhaps you provide gas cards or you have a new benefit for a commuter stipend or something that acknowledges that yes, there is something that's detrimental now coming into work that other people are kind of getting a benefit from, they don't have to commute.
2: You let me just add, add to that exactly. for a second. Exactly. Um, so I, I think this, this focus on intentionality and naming it is, is really important. So what the pandemic supplied by virtue of this, you know, outside shock um, to the system is that people had to actually think about stuff. And before we just had these norms and assumptions about work that were just there. We didn't even know we had them, right? Like that you just commute to your job and you just pay for your own gas. And that's the end of the story. So the world shifts almost overnight for a multi-year period. And a lot of the assumptions that we didn't even realize we had become visible in a way that we just hadn't been able to see it before and so what this then means is okay so now flexibility seems like a good thing but to your point some companies there's specific jobs or a large number of jobs that have to be done in person in fact most jobs in the in in the labor force have to be done in person um the, it's a minor you know a, a large group but I'm a minority that can like Completely be done remotely. Um, so, what do we do? And where I see people struggle is they feel like if we can't give all employees the same thing, then we can't do it. And then over time and evolution in their thinking is like, well, maybe we can't give everyone the same thing. So we need to start thinking about the work itself. What work is involved in each role? How best can that employee do the work? For employees that have to come into the office, how flexible can we be with other things, with starting and stopping times, with the, the days and the week they work, with an ability to switch with each other as things come up? I mean, families have been dealing with illness after illness after illness this year. Like, what are how flexible can we be within this set of constraints that we face given the type of work we do um, and and the culture we wanna have as a workplace? What this also reveals too is that you actually have to be more analytical, more thoughtful, and ultimately, I think you'll you'll run a better business because you've had to be much more intentional and deliberate, and not just relying on these assumptions and norms of working that we didn't even realize we had. Um, so, but it's painful, and there's a lot of uh, lessons to be learned, and. Iterations. So I think, too, for for company leaders cultivating a curiosity among their employees, like we're going to try a few different things and open to receiving your feedback about how they work. But we're just trying to get more things right than wrong. And we're not going to get there right away. Um, So I think that's that's sort of the moment we're in. Um, And, you know, this many years into the pandemic as, you know, offices have opened up, but there's, there's a lot of flux still. But I truly believe that when you think about things more because you have to, that analytic work pays off. So I'm excited to hear down the road, as much as it's logistically challenging and really painful sometimes and kind of frustrating, where a lot of organizations and companies end up. And
0: I I do want to add something here as well. Um, so Marianne, I love that you uh, mentioned that companies, you know, should try things and th- themselves be flexible. Um, we actually did an episode of the podcast in December with our VP of HR, Adrian Harrison, and she went through. It was a caretaker episode, so it's talking about people who are caretakers and how, you know, being in this kind of an environment sometimes hybrid situations, sometimes needing to be on site, um, what companies can do to support their caretaker employees um, and prevent them from leaving the workforce as well. So um, she actually talked through some solutions that printing companies can, can try and implement. And one of those things was being more flexible with start times, being more flexible with the time that, you know, if someone needs to come in at 7 a.m. because their child gets out of daycare or whatever it is at 3 or 4 p.m., try it. Or, you know, splitting shifts between two different employees rather than having it all be reliant on one. So there are some potential solutions for printing companies that require people to be on site. It's just having the, you know, uh, being able to experiment and embrace some change, I think, is important. So, um, yeah. And to come
2: to terms, I think, with it, there's a a very culturally durable and widespread belief that if you can't see people working <laughs> they're not working even after multiple years of people showing that that's possible um and that i think underneath it all is a is a relatively high amount of distrust of employees and that if we're not you know very rigid and we do anything differently that people are going to take advantage and 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 i think A lot of people don't even know that they actually have those underlying beliefs. I think there are sort of core beliefs about work that are not that are held society wide Um, and coming to terms with what are my core beliefs and why why are those my core beliefs and have I just sort of adopted them because they're all around us. And do I really think Um, and I'm always a fan of, you know, collecting data. A lot of people have very strong opinions about things that are not based on any data. And I, I, as a data person, I find this so fascinating that you could be so, you so believe that this is true. Um, If it's true, the data will show you it's true. So to what degree, what are sort of the things, the kinds of data you could collect to help you arrive at a real understanding of what things are associated with higher levels of productivity and what things are not? And I think that's,
1: that's a great, great point. And I do think that uh, we will see more research, I hope, in the area of particularly manufacturing and what that looks like, and kind of the the immediate knee jerk. Right, the beginning of of the pandemic was well, everyone has to go home, everyone has to isolate. And um, I think now you're right, uh, companies that, and we we see this within the industry, the companies that are, are really the, the leaders and kind of looking future forward are the ones that are undertaking that process and are you know, experimenting and trying um, new new structures within their, their manufacturing and their, their printing floors and their schedules. And I think that's one thing that um, I really liked about this study was at the, toward the end of the study, there's actually, I love this, it's about women, right? It's women in the workplace. However, I think it's a study that anyone running a company or definitely um, in charge of HR at a company should be reading regardless of their gender. And that's because at the, at toward the end, there was a list, I think you all called, you divided practices and policies into three categories. And if I recall, it was table setting, which was kind of like, here are the basic things. And this is in terms of um, some of these practices and policies that will help people through this time and be able to adjust to this new world of the workplace, right? And so kind of, I think a company should look at that and the table setting is here are the basics. And if their company is not doing some of those things, I think they probably need to have some reflection there. And then there's another category called leading practices, which are okay, if we're doing all of kind of what are the basics and not necessarily because the company thinks they should be doing them, it's what workers are now expecting and demanding and particularly um, in an industry that's trying to attract and retain New talent. Um, so, what are those expectations? Kind um, of, what are the leading practices where you might be able to? Particularly, a smaller mid-sized business might not be able to attempt all of the leading practices, but maybe they could focus on one, and collect that data and try that experiment. And then, um, finally, kind of the the emerging policies and practices that are maybe more aspirational that not all companies are doing. And I think you probably had, I, I think, Marianne, there were maybe percentages associated with the number of companies that fall into these buckets. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And, and again, direct people who are running companies and who are running HR to, to take a look at that chart.
2: Yeah, it's sort of the, the building blocks, right? Like the, the basics. so 75% of the companies had what we were calling table stakes. Um, and that's something basic, like, are you tracking representation and attrition by by gender and, and race? Are you, are you doing, because if you're not tracking those things, you have no idea. You, you can't really quantify if you have a problem, what that problem is and how big of a problem it is. Um, so at a basic level, kind of tracking that and understanding it. Um, the next, like building on a practice like that, for what we found with leading companies, they, these practices weren't as common, um, but uh, they were associated with having greater representation of, of women and folks of color, was setting targets for leadership, senior leadership roles and management roles um, by race and gender. Right. So saying, OK, so here's where we are. Here's where we want to go and being a little bit more concrete, because otherwise you don't really have a way of measuring progress. If you're not if you don't have like a a goal in mind of, of what you think it, it is, you know, something achievable, you'll never know if you're getting there or not. Um, so that's what uh, that's a, like a leading practice Um among a smaller number of companies, but looked promising. And then an emerging practice, which is sort of even even further along in the same area though, is setting goals for um, representation and leadership and management by looking at the intersection of of gender and race. And this is obviously critical for women of color. So what tends to happen in initiatives that are focused on gender is that they often um, tend tend to focus on white women. And to the degree that we have um, women in senior leadership roles, it's largely white women. Um, So again, understanding that there is no single story of women in the workforce there's a similar maybe set of barriers but usually whatever problem you find women experience it but women of color are disproportionately experiencing it. So if you're just looking at gender and race in separate categories, that story, the particular story for how women of color are experiencing the workforce, the patterns of disparity gets completely overlooked and thus ignored. So um, these emerging practices are are centering these intersections of of race and gender to really kind of peel back the layers and, and understand how different groups of women are experiencing the workforce, what their levels of representation are. And again, it, it's sort of a, if you want to solve a problem, you first have to understand what the problem is. And, and again, how big it is, the size and shape of it, where it's happening. Um, so that often for bigger companies that have, you know a higher number of employees, like this is especially critical because there's too many employees to really know unless you're actually looking at the numbers um, and tracking it over time. And then some, for smaller firms though, you're going to see the same patterns that show up in bigger firms. They just might be a little bit easier to count because there's just not as many, there's just not as many employees, Um, but all of these things matter. But I guess, you know, it's like how you have business goals. Like there's a reason you set business goals and objectives. It's because you have to measure achievement against what the, what the goal and objective are. And it's the same thing for diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are the goals and how fast are we accomplishing them? and i and and Ashley, I think you mentioned to your
1: previous podcast regarding caretaking, there was a whole uh, section I believe on the chart too about um benefit policies related to workplace flexibility for caretakers for parents and and so forth and I think it's interesting because. Uh, just again, anecdotally, I've heard where companies have focused on, and, and the focus is wor- working moms, right? We want to help okay. working moms. Well, really, the benefit is, is working parents. So, I mean, it really benefits. It, it may be driven by um, this idea of women in the workplace, but um, thanks to women in the workplace, it creates, you know, all the boats are lifted and it creates a better environment
2: for, for everyone, really. Yeah. I mean, caretaking is a huge, like if you, again, the reason, you know, another reason my data matters is, you know, we've got the baby boomers also coming on. So it's, it's, it's mothers, it's fathers, but we have an aging population who are going to, in, in addition to let's add long COVID to this, a whole group, groups of people that are going to need um, caregiving and you know it is always a, a issue that more directly impacts women because they're more likely to be doing that that caregiving but it is beyond beyond women and and to all genders that this is to the degree that we're having a problem filling jobs, like this is sizable. What's about to happen over the next ten years as the baby boomers, um, you know, age, uh, and we are not set up as a society. I mean, cl- clearly, we saw the lack of a care infrastructure during the pandemic, um, the beginning years, and even now. Um, I mean, just childcare. I know we have like a hundred thousand less people working in childcare. It's really hard to find a slot for your child. But you know, then then you're going to have people who have. The child care issues, the elder care issues. Um, and it, it, if we would like to have enough workers, we're going to have to support them as they're trying to do all of this.
0: Right. And, and actually, um, you know, going back to that episode from December, it was a, a good example of this because my colleague Dan was a guest host on the episode and he spoke um, with a, a, a woman in the industry And they have this mutual experience of both having children who have autism. And um, my my colleague, Dan, in in this circumstance, he has a a teenager who's nonverbal and um, his wife has worked from home for a very long time. Um, And so a lot of the caretaking responsibilities rested with her. And so being able to work for home from home for him has has kind of alleviated the, the pressure of having all of the caretaking, you know, picking up from school or appointments, things like that. Now they they share that responsibility, which is how it should be. And being having that flexible work environment also, you know, going back to that, allows multiple people who are caretakers to work together and, and support that
2: situation. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of uh, you know, fathers in particular. I mean, they, they still did less than mothers, just, just to be clear. Um, but that aside, fathers did more, especially in the earlier parts of, um, of the pandemic. And in my sense from, and from some research that's emerging is um, they liked spending more time with their children and uh, don't wanna give that up. And, or the, the threshold for giving that up is much higher. Again, it's no longer an assumption that just because I have this job means I means I don't get to drop my kids off at school because I have to be in the office at eight or whatever it is. It's, it kind of things are more um, sort of up for grabs about how things really have to be rather than just like no one even thinking it, it, there was just such an automatic assumption is this is what you do to be successful, to be productive. And that all I think is still up for debate somewhat. And again, like on a more existential level, when you live through a crisis of this kind, it's like, what really matters to me? And balancing what really matters to me with obviously the need to earn money um, and to um, have a job that you like or like enough in um, career development. But I, I think that something shifted in people's hearts and minds and in a way that I, you know, of course, we may roll back in some ways, but I think there there's somewhat there's a stickiness there that I'm interested to see how that plays out for men in particular, fathers in particular, men who are doing more caregiving.
1: And just with, um, I think it was on the heels of the bank crisis and you know recessionary fears kind of creeping up, and this idea of um, the the balance of power, I guess, between employers and Workers and I'm here you mentioned the word rollback, you know, which is made me think of it like what do you think that I, I'm just curious like do you think we're far from that, or do you think that um if we were to if we were to you know be in a recession, would all of this kind of evaporate and everybody just be scrambling to to have a job, any job or do you think it's like from a societal standpoint,
0: we we do
1: have you know the, a sense of balance now between employers and employees. Does that make sense? I don't know if the question. Yes,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so there's been a because of the Great Resignation, uh, em- employees had a moment of of power. Frankly, they they were they had more power and more leverage than they've had in, in quite some time. Um, They were very vocal about certain things, um, and they voted with their feet. And the question is, the things that they voted with their feet about, from flexibility to wanting to be with employers that support well-being and diversity, equity, inclusion, and and those sorts of things, um, you know, What's going to happen? You know, it, it, is that recession proof? I think is is the question fundamentally, and I think I think some of it is. My my expectation is that um, employers who believe, for some set of reasons, that in person is best, will use this as an opportunity to compel people back to the workplace. But interestingly, because the pandemic, the early part of it went on for so long, multi, multiple years it's really hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, And also because during the course of it, some employers have adopted flexibility as as what differentiates them. They've moved into that sort of workplace identity, work culture identity. They sold office space. They hired people who didn't work near offices. I mean, once you have a sizable number of employees that literally could not commute to an office, you can't go back. Um, so that's what will be very interesting is I think we are in a great shakeout right now um, on these questions and that given what women and folks of color have said that they prefer, this is what's gonna happen is that some companies will become, um, they will draw in people for whom flexibility and DEI are top of mind. Um, and other companies may have enough, you um, Career opportunities, or brand name, or whatever that they can sort of set the terms, um, and maybe, maybe some of it overlaps with what employees want, but maybe less of it. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. But I, I think that we've lived through one of the largest transformations in work to ever happen. I think a lot of it will stick, um, but but we'll see. We'll see. This is the where we are, and the economic uncertainty is, um, you know, when people get threatened, quote unquote, or, or, or concerned, sometimes they go back to more traditional ways of thinking. That's what research shows. So, you know, uh, but to be clear, many, 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 many companies had their best years ever over the last few years when large percentages, almost all of their workforce for companies that, that have jobs like that where people work remotely. So that I think debate has been settled you you can have a very productive, successful company with people working remotely. Thank
1: you for answering that, as I think that is um, you're right. I think the question or the term is recession proof, and I think and and the stickiness is is something that people will start debating the moment that they start to become concerned. And I, I do think it's interesting in a, a legacy industry like printing. It's you know a very very you know traditional. Manufacturing industry, and it will be interesting to see which companies decide to kind of focus on that—that that attract and retain using some of these new values and flexibilities—and and which ones don't, you know. And and it's it's up to each company, obviously. I know we, as an association, and particularly uh, Women in Print Alliance, will certainly be encouraging companies to look at all of this this positive data and the idea that um, employers are probably better off if they are willing to be uh, more open-minded about some of those constructs that, as you said, nobody thought about before March of 2020.
2: Yeah, and just to be like, we will not have enough workers. I mean, I think this is, I, I'm kind of like a broken record here, but y- you've got the baby boomers for whom many of them who can retire are. You've got, you know, a lot of people died in the pandemic who were still a prime working age. You've got another, you know, million or so or more, depending on how you define it, who aren't in the workforce because of long COVID. And we'll keep adding to that over time because people are continuing to catch COVID and continuing to get long COVID. And we don't have, as high immigration as we would need to offset that. And <laughs> the younger folks are even more interested in flexibility, DEI, employee well-being. So I just, again, this is why the numbers really matter is we're in, you know, unless our labor market contracts so substantially that there's then a match between the number of, of people available to work and the number of jobs, but we're, we're, we've got some tightness there. Cause we just don't have enough people, whatever business you have, it can be really hard to like take that 10,000 foot view, but I think it's important to do that because that's sort of forecasting what the labor market, like what's going to be available from a talent perspective and what that market is telling you. And as, and all labor markets, regardless of how tight they are, you want the best people, right? And what are, so if, if, this is the dominant set of things that people want, and you want to attract the best employees. Like I think the writing's on the wall. It just depends how open you are are to it, or you know, or if you're willing to only like this even make it even smaller the labor market you have available because your what your requirements are to work at your workplace are are ones that are actually less popular. Um, so it's it's. It's an interesting time. It's and it's and it's hard because you know there are bills to pay and projects to get done and you know life to live and dishes to do and laundry to fold and it's all that stuff and it's it can be hard to really take that that view while we're all kind of in the middle of it. But that's why the numbers, you know, data is always very level setting and it's it's it. it, it I think it tips you in particular directions about at least things to start thinking about and opening up to. So that brings me to my
0: last question. Um, and I'd like to ask about um, a, you know, a buzzword in the workplace, which is allyship. And I know allyship training is mentioned as one of the suggested leading practices in the study. So I have a two-part question here. Marianne, how do you define allyship? And Lisbeth, given that the printing industry workplace is disproportionately male, how does Women in Print Alliance intend to address allyship? So Marianne, why don't you start us off?
2: Sure. So. Allyship is sort of consistently and actively using your power and privilege, whatever sorts of power and privilege you have to advocate and support those who have less power and privilege. Um, So the key things are uh, consistently, (laughs) Um, not just like paying attention to an issue for a second because it's in the news, right? So consistent over time and active Which can be a range of things from just noticing dynamics that are happening around you, like people, certain people getting interrupted more than other people, or like, you know, your boss being confused for your junior person. I mean, it, you know, acknowledge, seeing, acknowledging, and responding to things as they happen. So, um, one of the harder things about allyship is that people um, are really reluctant to see their power and privilege. And we all sort of have this psychological defensiveness to it, because the way it lands is that we've been given something that's not earned right so if you um the, if you are a white person talking about you know the ways in which white people are often advantaged in a lot of different ways, but in interactions or in assumptions about you or whatever um what what studies have shown is that when you make people aware of your privilege people go out of their way to show the hardship that they've had they've had to overcome so immediately they're like bending over backwards to try to you know because they, they it feel the way it often lands for people is that something's wrong with them or they're not quite they're not good people and so part of it is diffusing that feeling in yourself and just sort of trying to understand again the studies, the research, the data, this is what it shows. Um, And this is what's true about these dynamics that happen in the workplace, um, and what are things I can do. So I think it takes a curiosity about inequality, a curiosity about how kind of just disparate and dynamics happen in the workplace, why are there disparities, Um, trying to figure it out yourself, um, and then educating yourself, raising your own awareness about what it is that I can do, and and it's important to understand that people have different ranges of influence. I mean, if you're the CEO, you have a lot more influence than if you're the intern, right? Like it, you just you just do. Um, so it's becoming aware of these things, and then what are the what are the best approaches to addressing it? From you know trying to mitigate and block bias in performance reviews to creating a more welcoming and inclusive environment. I I guess I I'd, I'd add that it's also it is a a set of knowledge and expertise, like reading one pamphlet on like the struggles that women have in the workplace does not mean that you understand the breadth of it. So um, you need to really take a lot of attention and care to getting up to speed on these issues and that they are business business critical, I guess. For the leaders, this is business critical. For the rest of us who are sort of, you know, either mid-level or lower level, it's what can I do at work in interactions? How can I be supportive of, of other folks? And I think it can range, it can range from like just saying to someone, I saw that happened. I'm sorry that happened. A lot of times you have no power. You're not gonna be able to say to the whomever that, that they actually just, you know, they were they're telling all the women in the office to smile. You're not, you know, if you're the, the entry level, you can't say anything, but you can say, I, I see it. It's unfortunate there's right. some bonding that can happen over that. But other ways there's other moments where you have power and influence to do something. Um so that's what allyship is is I think being very humbled and open to understanding your privilege without feeling attacked. And if you feel attacked, taking a step to count to 10 and sitting with it and then figuring out all the different ways you could change your behavior or change policy or change whatever to make things better. Right. And I think, you know,
0: one of the things you said where, um, you know, sometimes people, people will respond within their struggles. Well, it's not invalidating someone's struggles, but it's saying, look, here is the issue. And then just accepting it and, you know, learning from it and um, trying to do better in the future,
2: I think is, is you know, important for everyone. Yes. Yeah, it is. And there's, you know, and all of us, because we have multiple identities can be privileged in some areas of our life and not privileged in others. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's also, it's like a complicated task actually to be like, what are all my identities? You know, uh, you know, there's you know, people who, who grew up in, you know, families where there are very, very limited resources, you know, that's also, uh, you know, you have less power and privilege when you're, you know, in, in poverty and things like that. And so, you know, we all come to it, not just ourselves, but our families and these different sort of status groups. Um. And, but, you know, certain groups are, are, have lower social status than others. And then, and then in some ways you're in higher social status groups. And so um, I guess it just takes sort of a, a, thinking deeply, which we often don't have time to do getting back to the laundry to fold and dishes to do, but it is important. Um, And of course, people who are in traditionally marginalized groups often have more consciousness around these things because they're on the receiving end of it um, more of the time um, than others. So allyship, I think, is thinking about the highest level. What's wrong with the world around me that I don't like? What's unfair? And what can I do Um, to address it, not in the sense of you saving the day (laughs) or stepping in, because there is that too, which is always interesting, but being supportive of other people and supporting their efforts as well. Yeah. And, and Ashley, I think
1: that's probably where I see Women in Front Alliance having, um, I would say, dipping a toe into encouraging allyship Because uh, most of the president CEOs of printing companies, the ones who, as Marianne said, are in in a business setting, the most influential uh, places of power, we really want to be sure that we as an alliance are not just talking to women, that we are talking to uh, the business leaders and um, others in the C-suite in our industry too, so that Um, First of all, there's an acknowledgement, there's an acknowledgement that, you know, there are um, much fewer, many fewer women in our industry than there are men, and there are many less fewer, there are fewer women in our company than there are men. And the fact that um, just that that acknowledgement is there, and that um, the women they do have on their staffs um, would probably benefit from personal and professional development and learning about advocacy, both self-advocacy and advocating um, for for their company and the industry. And so I think that um, just that acknowledgement is kind of level one for us with Women in Print Alliance and making sure that, for example, during Women's History Month, Um, we are not just talking to women, we are talking to all CEOs regardless of gender and encouraging them to make sure that women on their staff are aware of this new organization and some of the the new um, practices, um, opportunities, events, development opportunities that we will be offering so they can take advantage of those. Um, I've been encouraged just in the short amount of time that we've launched this initiative, that uh, first of all, earlier this month, um, the beginning of Women's History Month, all of our advisory council members, and and they are, I talked earlier at the the beginning of this podcast about a, a small group of really dedicated women who have been pushing this initiative for years, and most of them are on the advisory council And um, we had them really promote that on LinkedIn. They all posted a graphic saying, I am really excited. I'm on the Advisory Council of Women in Print Alliance. And I was really encouraged to see the comments on LinkedIn that followed from a lot of their fellow uh, male CEOs and peers saying, that's so great, I'm so glad you're involved. Our industry needs that. And so there was just a lot of positive, there may be fewer women in leadership positions in the printing industry, but I think they're very well-respected. And I think that um, that their counterparts, um, their male counterparts want to see um, them be successful. And I also thought it was interesting just talking to some male CEOs. One thing that's unique about the printing industry is that um, especially on the small business side and that the, the mid-sized business side, there are still a lot of family owned companies, not as many as there used to be, um, but I know of at least two companies um, where from the, from the trade association world, we had uh, the trade association president a generation ago was the father and most recently um, the daughter became the chairman or the daughter serves on the board and so there definitely is kind of a, a segment of the industry that still is uh, family owned and I've had at least two or three of these men come to me and say you know my daughter just started with the company or my niece is with the company how do I get them involved in Women in Print Alliance and so you know, it, it may not be the, the full scale allyship, but I think we're going to help at least people kind of dip their toe into it and understand that one thing they can do as a leader, a male leader of a company, is just even offer these opportunities to women and give them the hour off. Um, when we do our monthly mentorship Zoom so that, you know, they don't feel like they have to eat at their desk. You know, it's a legitimate thing. They can actually participate in this professional development opportunity. And so I think those kinds of things, Ashley, to answer your question, um, yes, there's the DEI training and there's the more kind of in-depth allyship. But I think just initially, just having women in the printing industry recognized as a community is... um, is going to be a big step. And it's something candidly that we heard from our research going back to to data and research that women are looking for the opportunity to recognize each other and find each other in some of these communities and particularly at work conferences or events where they feel that, you know, they they get on a, a shuttle to go to a conference and they're the only woman, you know, and, and they're they're they would love to be able to find one another, literally just find and see one another and create that community. And once they do, I think that then, you know, their strength in numbers, then the men in the industry start to recognize that there is this actual community of women in print. So that's really kind of what we're all about. And um, I, I would love to get us to those higher level. And I think that's very aspirational and something hopefully um, through the, the years our Alliance can seek to do.
0: That's very exciting. And I cannot wait to see what happens with Women in Print Alliance. Um, and I'm excited to hopefully be a part of, you know, the events and things that happen. Cause it sounds like it's just a, a huge step and, and really exciting. Um, So thank you both. Thank you so much for walking us through the study. I really appreciate you being here today. I want to give my sincere thanks to Marianne for sharing her expertise with us today. And special thanks to Elizabeth for joining me on the episode and for advocating for women in the printing industry. If you would like some more information about the Women in the Workplace study, I will include a link to it in the description. If you are interested in learning more about or supporting the Women in Print Alliance mentioned in today's podcast, I will link to it in the description. To learn more about joining the Alliance community, engaging with the Women in Print Alliance Network, and information about member-exclusive resources, visit printing.org slash join. Finally, I want to thank all of you, our listeners. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Impressions Exchange
2: podcast.